I hilariously had really bad tonsillitis. So in the last week that he was dying, I could not speak. I can't do an impression of how I sounded. It's like when you literally, like you, you can't to speak. <laughs> and you can't. <laughs> oh, it's actually called hot potato. Yeah, literally. <laughs> literally. Well, goodbye, father. See you on the other side. <laughs> Welcome back to Daddy Issues podcast with Harrod George Carey. Daddy Issues is a podcast exploring fatherlessness, but more specifically, fatherlessness in successful people. I want to prove that regardless of whatever daddy issues you think you have, you can achieve anything you put your mind to. Fatherlessness affects so many of us, so it's time to start listening to each other's stories and opening up this conversation as one that needs to be recognised, heard and confronted. If you like what you hear, please do feel free to rate, review and subscribe, because not only do we love hearing all your feedback, but it gets the podcast to more ears. And the more ears, the merrier. So thank you so much. I'm going to let you get on with the episode now. And I hope you have a wonderful listen. In today's episode, I am speaking to Emma and Tamsin Topolsky. Emma started her musical journey as a jazz singer and session multi-instrumentalist with artists like Laura Marling, Ghost Poet and Dua Lipa. Later, Emma formed her own act, Sinclair as a vehicle for her own songwriting and production. Since, she's released two EPs, D1 and D2, under her own imprint, Dearly Beloved, has also just joined Bombay Bicycle Club as their new singer and is the bassist for London's softcore psych quartet, Childcare. Tamsin Topolsky is an actress, writer and photographer. Tamsin is clearly a woman of many talents. Not only are her photographs beautiful if you go on her website and check them out but she's also known for tv series penny dreadful the rook and strike as well as being the director behind the incredible collaboration that both sisters have come together as a tribute for their father daniel topolsky i'm so excited for you to hear this episode as i found it fascinating hearing about how they came together to collaborate on a project so close to both their hearts being about their father and how that felt having of course as sisters grieved although from the same experience very differently so please do sit back enjoy and have a wonderful listen so what i thought would be useful for the listener is if you guys introduce yourself so that I guess the listener can know which voice is speaking. Okay. Right? <laughs> uh, my name is Tamsin. Uh, this is my voice. <laughs> I'm Emma, and this is my voice. <laughs> so Tamsin, you're yeah. a director. I am. And Emma, you are better known as Sinclair. Yeah, just about. Yes. Yeah. Oh well, as in like that's your music name. That's my music name. So as I always start, I'd love to just set the scene with you both and ask where you grew up and sort of tell me a bit about your family dynamic. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Do you want to start? Uh, we grew up in London and it's me and Tam, our brother Luke, who was a tail ender. He's 10 years younger than me. Um, so it was mainly me and Tam for the beginning and our parents, Susie and Dan... Um, and Tam and I are four years apart, so it, we never quite caught up growing up. So we were really close as little ones. And then I got to a sort of, I'm very cool age. And Tam was like, be my friend. And I was like, no. Cause I'm cool age is be- like eight. <laughs> I was like, 11. <laughs> um, I've had my first snog and you can't play with me anymore. And then, yeah, we kind of played catch up and then settled in our 20s as pals very good pals that's so nice Mm. so when did that do you remember the shift because I remember a shift that I got with my sister my big sister Mm. but so do you remember the shift I think I was I mean my memory's foggy obviously age sort of four Mm. but the the stories that are told is that I was I think slightly obsessed with Emma (laughs) 
uh, as little sister's tension. And like you can yeah. sort of tell from photographs of me just sort of adoringly. She had these incredible, like perfect ringlets and was just like just perfect in every way. And I was like a proper scruffy sort of scamp. Um, and so I think that was the dynamic initially. And then I suppose the shift, then obviously you're at such different stages of your life for such mm-hmm. a long time. I think the shift and biting yeah. and hitting and hating. <laughs> a lot of hating. <laughs> a lot of like stealing each other's stealing things. Stealing and then lying. <laughs> I think the shift was like, I was maybe once you'd left school. I think you were at uni. Or yeah, once you'd left university and I was at university maybe. Yeah. And then we, we went to our first festival together as friends. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. I remember doing that with my sister. It's so bonding. Yeah. Yeah. It was. We sort of ended up having quite a lot of mutual friends by that age, yeah. didn't we? Um, I think we just so yeah, found a Secret Garden other. Party Festival, maybe. Yeah. That, was, that, was, that was the shift. Circa 20... 2011, maybe? Not 10? 2010? Yeah. Oh. Something like was that, that when it was really muddy? No. No, well, it was I think really it's muddy great. every year. It was great. It was glorious. Yeah. yeah. It, was the year, was it. it was the year after, and then I think got quite um, overpopulated. Yeah. I think. But yeah, maybe 2010. I can't remember. Oh, bring back festivals. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I don't have to do that anymore. Not that I actually ever go yeah. to them anymore. No, I never. <laughs> Even without COVID, we would not be there. <laughs> I'm such a diva these days. I'm like, unless I'm going glamping. Yeah, exactly. Or unless I'm, I'm playing. playing. <laughs> yeah. Unless I'm playing the main stage, I'm not going. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> You both have recently collaborated on an amazing, amazing project that I had the privilege of seeing over quarantine. And I guess before we go into that, I'd love to ask about your dad and who he was and then perhaps how he died. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I go straight in. He died. He died. That's another fun story. Yeah, that is a really good story. Um, not the death. Is it? Not, not the death. death. That's not fun at all. Um, dad, dad. So his name was Daniel Topolsky, mm-hmm. and he did lots of sort of varying things. I suppose he, his main focus was rowing for a long time. Um, he coached the Oxford rowing team for like fourteen years. Um, Eleven consecutive wins. Yeah. Was he? Mm. So wow. a bit of a hero. Yeah. So yeah, he's a bit of a hero in the rowing world, which is very niche. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but he was a photographer. He was a travel writer. He was incredibly sort of gregarious and um, adventurous and sort of had this amazing life um, traveling the world and sort of writing about it. Mm. Um, kind of kind of until he met mum. He was sort of... Um, had a slight reputation for having a bit too much fun and then he sort of met my mum and had um just kind of fell head over heels in love and sort of was like oh no I I would like monogamy and this sounds nice um yeah so he was always um very uh engaging as a person he had like a lot of stories and was very politicized we sort of had to talk about like the Gaza Strip around the dinner table age sort of six rather than the what the Gaza, the Gaza Strip, Strip or any other right. sort of amazing yeah it was quite not interested in um you know Clementine from school uh who I held her hand on the way to the uh breakfast not interested in that <laughs> have to talk about you know Palestine or um the war in Iraq or whatever oh my god um, I love that though yeah I think we, not that I love the war in Iraq <laughs> <laughs> I love the war in Iraq the soundbite that. that gets lifted <laughs> um, yeah I think he loved hanging out with us when we were little then we got boring yeah and, and really and trivial horrible. and then he loved us again when we had our own minds and opinions yes. and we could um think a bit more freely and yeah. So this is a in you know teen years the whole trivial part yeah. when we yeah. all become sheep. Horrible. Well, yeah. sheep and just like horrible people. Yeah. I think I was particularly horrible. It was. Tell us some stories. <laughs> I don't really want to. <laughs> I, I saw your face. I was like, there's something under that. <laughs> I think I just was um, sort of. I yeah. I sort of re- rebelled. That's sort of that. Yeah. 
I wasn't the nicest teenager. Mm-hmm. I don't think. I'm girl. really nice now. <laughs> She's so <laughs> nice. Yes. Making up for yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your because your mum she's obviously still around and she and your parents were always together until your dad died mm. so what's your mum like uh mum is super consistent mm-hmm. really positive really loving and nurturing very very resilient and robust sometimes to a fault where you're like hello it's okay not to be okay um and Mm. just yeah incredibly independent and creative she's an actress actor an actor actor. um and an amazing anchor i think for dad dad still was able to sort of be the kite and um and mum was this sort of amazing homemaker and Mm. nurturer of children but still very sociable um very charismatic uh they were an amazing team very patient (laughs) dad was quite um (laughs) challenging sometimes yeah Um, in what way uh just quite impatient Mm -hmm. occasionally a lot of it probably to do with his illness um but yeah mum's just she's a peacemaker Mm -hmm. and yeah was an amazing force for um support and uh just knowledge and wisdom picking us all up like what does she call us her chicks her chicks yeah. she is like mother hen just like seemed to know what to do yeah. she's also all. very independent and very sassy as well may i just add? yeah i did say independent yes, uh, yeah yes yeah yeah okay, very sassy love. so yeah. many friends yeah yeah it doesn't doesn't have time for us mm. <laughs> it was all a lie everything Much i just said <laughs> So when you mentioned your dad's illness, what was that? Uh, he had leukemia, a type called CLL, mm-hmm. um, and he was diagnosed. Uh, well, when he was diagnosed, he was sort of given a five-year prognosis, and then it was in like nineteen ninety-six. Was it? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, long. God, he was long. diagnosed. He, he survived, am I right, yeah, much longer he, than yeah. I yeah, yeah, much longer um, against odds and just, yeah, had every single treatment under the sun that was offered for that um, particular disease. And so he'd sort of have loads of chemo and radiotherapy and be very, very unwell at an age where we didn't fully understand what was going on and we were kind of kept in the dark. And then he sort of arrived home with no hair and we were just like... you're terrifying I remember reacting so badly and just running away from him Mm. but we hadn't been told to be sensitive about it yeah he'd sort of shaved his head purposefully so that it didn't sort of start falling out Mm. which I think is quite a common thing to do Mm. Um, so it was more like oh I've you know dad's had a haircut we were horrified looks terrible (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) so what ages were you at at this point I was six I was ten and age 10, did you have, did you start sort of being a bit suspicious about this behaviour? Were you like, hmm? After a while, but no, not initially. We were so protected from the truth. By Just, Mother Hen. By Mother Hen. Mm. By both. And Father Hen. Mm. Father, and father Cockerel. Hen. I think because he was an athlete, I think um, he didn't want the diagnosis and that he was a sort of sick person to sort of govern the way that people saw him. So I don't think any of his, like, only his very, very close friends sort of knew it, really, as well. Like, mm. the, his sort of work life and um, being around sport and being a sort of, like, strong, thriving person, I think he just didn't want that wrapped up in his identity. So I think, yeah, he sort of didn't, didn't like, involve us in that process when we were really young. Mm. Sort of never really did. He sort of never wanted it to be what we saw him as was a sick person. Mm. Um, How did he manage to sort of avoid, if you will, that identity from you guys? We ebbed and flowed. He was like predominantly strong and healthy. And then it would be sort of, um, he'd get hit with something else. Mm. There were moments of remission. And then, yeah, like years, three or four years of that. And then 
a bone marrow transplant, for example, like huge kind of mm. operation that then went well. But I suppose if you're gearing up to that, you're mainly hospitalised and you're, we're not on the front line observing that. And I guess must have been protected and stayed with other people. I don't really know. They did a great job. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then I think we just got used to the bounce back ability of somebody being really ill and then having an understanding of what that meant and this disease, but it's a chronic leukemia. And it was always described as, well, you know, it's what really, really old people get when they've got to die of something kind of thing. And it's not um, that aggressive uh, form of cancer. And so I think, yeah, we got slightly duped into thinking that he was slightly invincible. Yeah. No, I can definitely see that, especially when you've Mm. grown up with it mm. like yeah. it's such a normal part of your life yeah do you remember the time when you realized that this was going to kill your dad no we were well, that last oh yeah obviously like, yeah not the last day obviously not <laughs> like, like, oh it's happening oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um that last year so he got really ill he got pneumonia and then never really recovered but even then i think there was a lot of denial and a lot because he'd always got well again we just thought oh it's another this looks really bad and it feels bad but mm. he's sort of he's always found it found the strength or there's been a drug or there's been another operation mm. that's gonna mm. gently gently we're gonna heal him back to health and and he's gonna and he was so known at the hospital as well because he'd been there for you know, in and out of there for such a long time, the Marsden. Mm. So, you know, they were, they knew his body so well and they were always sort of kind of coming up with new concoctions of drugs to be able to sort of get through that next stage. Mm. So and I think have his weekly platelet injections and it was just like yeah, being treated constantly. Yeah. So yeah. I think we just thought he'll just be treated some more with a new, yeah, like a new innovation. And yeah. I think he did as well. I think he, he, you know, I think refused to believe that this time was really bad. But he physically deteriorated in a way that he hadn't before. He like lost he lost so much weight, lost his appetite, kind of, you know, fell into a bit of a depression. Well, a depression I would say. So I think physically it became quite telling that this time maybe it was different. And um what was that time? What how many years later? This is 2014. Uh, so he died in 2015, yeah. Gosh, so quite a long time later. Considering Amazing. his original diagnosis was five years. Yeah, it was yeah. Seven, 17 years, I think. Yeah, that he, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. 17 years. And a lot That's... of those years were like really healthy and really great. Yeah. So. Was he sort of, when he kept coming back, when the doctor was like, what are you still doing? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah. That's incredible. It almost became mundane, which is so mm. mad to think. And then when he tried to have proper conversations about it, I remember being taken out to lunch, um, which now in hindsight I see as a kind of conscious move to uh, impart some kind of hereditary future that you know this is you're going to be your um your kind of baton and uh about so his father was a painter and uh there's so much art um he was very prolific and so there's this enormous warehouse after warehouse of stashes of stuff mm. which is great because it's really beautiful but it's quite a, an onus um uh on us to kind of figure out what to do with it all so he, I kind of got the the chat uh, and this and I want you to do this and take this on and because this isn't great and actually and it was a sort of attempt at having a serious conversation about I'm not very well um but I don't know you had that conversation yeah you didn't know about it I don't know yeah yeah I mean it, it it was just it wasn't during that kind of it wasn't post the pneumonia thing mm. it was more just general yeah general and I do have a cancer and Mm. this is gonna have to be sort of sorted out but that just it felt just every day Mm. when was that what time was that maybe a a year before that so he probably that kind of instinct maybe when you know you're deteriorating Mm. in a way that potentially I obviously don't know what this feels like but I'm guessing Mm. 
that thing where you know, oh, okay, you know how some people know, like, it's the day, they're going to die tomorrow. <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? There's that thing of, like, maybe you just know, okay, this is I think the platelets had stopped. Sorry to interrupt. I, th- I think the platelets had stopped taking. Okay. I think there was there was something in the regular treatment that were, were not... Mum described it as filling up a bath without the plug in it. Mm. Um, so his body, the white blood cells that are supposed to clot your blood weren't taking anymore. So it was just like having all these infusions, but his body wasn't kind of keeping yeah. them in. Um, and that then presented like a very severe... Well, your immune system is just so compromised yeah Mm. Um, I bet yeah so like a cold or like anything can sort of be the end of you yeah which is why the pneumonia well why it turned into pneumonia yeah Yeah. so I think that there is definitely there was a knowledge of okay this treatment is no longer working we're looking at other solutions but Mm. if I catch the mildest thing um it could mean pneumonia and it could mean death which is what happened Mm. and what do how do you think it changed because obviously you were both so young, but did you see a change in your father in the way that he was before his diagnosis to kind of living every day, I'm guessing, not knowing if what the next is really going to bring. Like we all obviously live with, in the back of our minds that we could die tomorrow, but we don't actually think that. We very much think we're going to be alive tomorrow. But if you have been told that you've got something that is killing you inside your body. Mm. Um, I just wonder how it changed how he then approached his life in those 17 years. Mm. It's hard to gauge, isn't it? Because sometimes he was quite uh, grumpy sometimes and I never knew whether how much of the real him was there or how much of it was purely an, a kind of inflicted thing from the disease. Um, you mean sort of drugs and stuff? Mm. And yeah, because yeah. you get depressed and stuff from drugs. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I don't know. I think he always had like a thirst for life and joy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I've found that I've gone back and to old photographs of him before I even knew him. I feel like that's the fo- that's the photographs that I have up in my flat. Like that, those are the ones that I f- want to relate to, even though I didn't really know him. You know, at, at that time, mm. I didn't really know him as a person. I suppose. So, like when he was young with my mum, or when I was like a baby. Um, I don't know about you. Do you the holidays? That always seems like a really strong memory. He mm. was so good with us, kind of diving competitions and getting stuck in and chucking us about and. That feels very real and honest to me. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so much joy, love traveling. And so any opportunity for us to go away together as a family, which we didn't do that much, was always like, right, where are we going? And what are we discovering? And mm. um, and there was less of that, I guess. But that could have also been the age gaps and loads of work commitments. And, and it also comes, I think, from like the way mum talks about him and meeting some of his friends or the way that he's remembered within his social circle outside of his family is like like kind of life and soul of the party mm-hmm. and so like so thoughtful and caring of people's qualms like would always be in like one conversation with someone and like make sure that they kind of got deep and worked stuff out if they were struggling and then also would dance till like five in the morning mm. Mm. so I think <laughs> yeah so, the dancing is a recurring I think he was yeah he was very sort of popular and loved and I think that's what I hold on to as well mm. and like I've got there's this one photograph it was on your birthday it was like the sort of two weeks before he died or or like a month before he died mm. and it's terrifying because he doesn't look like himself mm. and it's like a family photo and if I'm like going through my photo as you do if you're like bored on the train <laughs> and that comes up and I'm like whoa holy hell yeah. I have to I can't look cut at it, it too out. long because yeah I have to cut it out because that image of him at the end is too it's like too strong to sort of um spend any more time on if that makes sense of course. so it's like i mean it's somebody emaciated and diminished yeah and yeah to answer your question i don't think he 
ever, like you said at the beginning, sees himself as an ill person. It, there was so much shame and yeah. so much pride lost and being an athlete, being the life and soul of the party, being charismatic, being sexy. I remember mm. him saying, my where, my bum, where is my bum? I have a beautiful, great bum and now I just have bones. I don't have an ass anymore. And, and he was really, really showing off about how great an arse he used to have. Um, but yeah, his, his whole identity was wrapped up in athleticism, travel, socializing, yeah. sex, mm. and none of those things were possible. And he didn't have hobbies, which was so frustrating. So trying to kind of nurture somebody. Well, rowing was his thing. So he'd go, he'd go even when he was, you know, in his late, because he was quite a bit older, Mm-hmm. Uh, the mum like 10 years old yeah. but he was still rowing like three times a week on a, so he was still that was his thing so then the but physical... he wouldn't do puzzles or gardening <laughs> or cooking or so watching he movies have, he wouldn't have survived well during COVID oh my god no. <laughs> but he also no didn't survive well being stripped of all the things that were the key elements of his identity so yeah. you couldn't still find like okay well this these are the new circumstances but let's do all these other great things domestically or it was just like nah, no this isn't who I am yes do you think that also I can imagine if he was to sort of start gardening or start baking or like do you know what I mean baby I can yeah. see how I can think I can see how it must feel to be like oh my god this is this is the illness like this is what I yeah. now have to do and it's a reminder of what your new life in inverted commas now has to look like which is a reminder of something which you don't want obviously yeah I think that's really well put I think that's exactly what it would have felt like to yeah. him was sort of like it would have felt like a defeatist thing to yeah. do to sort of suddenly start reading or like become interested in he loved reading the news but he never really read like novels mm. um but yeah doing something that Having, just felt so incongruous with like who he was mm. would have just sort of been more facing yes. the illness yeah then yeah. defiance at least gives you control and yeah and a goal definitely yeah. and just sort of stubbornness against death I think it's mm. literally like fuck you I don't yeah. want to be part of your game or story or plan for me like yeah. I'm mm-hmm. gonna do whatever I want to do until the end yeah like, I can definitely see and understand yeah. that I'd love to talk about, obviously, you've both created this incredible, beautiful, insanely moving tribute to your dad and his death. And uh, Sinclair, obviously your music name. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. It's amazing. And then, obviously, Tamsin, you directed it. Mm. It's so beautiful. And actually, I'm going to read out something I sent you in the email over quarantine. (laughs) It says, I just had a watch of your film. And it's so dramatic. (laughs) But it really was like this moment. <laughs> and found myself in floods of tears by the third song. I then couldn't stop. Not only the beautiful music, words and visuals, but hearing your dad's voice talking when you were little sent me over the edge. I'm tearing up as I write this. It was genuinely the most sort of... I was... <laughs> heaving. <laughs> yes, heaving. Because it's not it's only nice to just... have a good heave though. You know what I, mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. When it comes, I'm like, bring it. Yeah, yeah. bring it on. <laughs> um... But so tell me about a bit, I guess, about how that project was inspired and how it was to sort of collaborate with each other on something so massively personal to both of you. Mm. As much as it's a shared experience, I know this as well as you two do, you know, within siblings, you grieve very differently and you cope very differently. Mm. So I'd just love to know how it all happened and then the process of the whole thing. And then obviously talk about the project as well, because it's the last moments coming out. Yeah. (laughs) You uh, uh, well, it started with it started with you. Yeah, so I am a musician by trade, and I've got an artist project called Saint Clair, and I wanted to create a body of work that was cogent and coherent and had multiple parts to it because I'm independent, and it can be really hard to kind of get your ducks in a row for one song and then the momentum's really hard so I knew I wanted to do something with an arc and then I was looking at all of the songs that I'd written over the last few years and I saw there were a few consistencies with songs I'd written at different points of the grieving process about dad 
um, some during um, his illness uh, and kind of as he was dying, some in the immediate aftermath of that sort of numb, weird, disconnected phase, and then some with so much more reflective time um, where I was making choices about what to delve into and what imagery to use. And so that kind of inspired the, the project. Um, let's take these songs. Um, they are about grief, but they represent completely different chapters in my own grieving process. And, oh, it's a bit intense, isn't it? And, oh, it's a bit personal. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I don't have to really hammer it home, but it's loosely about that and people can interpret it how they like. <laughs> Um, and then I thought it'd be really nice if it is going to have this journey to it to have accompanying visuals and who better (laughs) to do it than my grieving sister (laughs) Um, and Tam is (laughs) Tam's an actor and and a photographer uh, and had directed a live video for me um, before and just has an incredible eye, mm. amazing taste in everything. And uh, I thought, I wonder if she'd be up for this. It's quite a big project, but maybe it's not. Um, so <laughs> approached Tam and said, "What? Well, how do you feel about this? And and so we got brainstorming together and um, my, I had like 10 different ideas that like we could keep it super simple and each video could just have a different colored background <laughs> yeah. because we've got no budget. And then, and then it sort of spiraled and we'd kind of, you know, go around to each other's houses and drink wine and, oh, and I'd be like, love. oh, do you remember the um, Mexican Gulf oil slick? Why don't we build a perch for a bird? And then, and Tam's like, yeah, I think you'd need quite a big studio and then loads of um, carpenters. And I uh, don't know if that's within the budget. And so, yeah, I think our first attempt at a treatment was like, I think the producer we found said it was going to be 44 and a half grand. And we were like, oh, okay. She just didn't have any sort of um, uh, ambition though. Because the, like, the treatment didn't change massively from that. That's true. Who didn't have much ambition? The, the producer, producer. The initial person we, we was approached. like, that can't, you want someone who's like, that's a really hard thing to do, but we can do it. Yes, Not like, this definitely. is going to cost you five times more than you can actually um, I think that's just lazy. Yeah, it was a bit lazy. lazy. And we learned just not that thinking massively mm. that you can, I mean, for what we achieved with what we had, it's it's remarkable. Mm. Um, and we did get a bit of funding um, from some very generous people, but still uh, it was down to kind of the team we assembled in, in the end. Yes. Uh, and their generosity. But anyway, essentially that I approached Tam and said, help. And, um, and she came up with, all these brilliant ideas mm. is that how you remember it yeah <laughs> it was just a <laughs> yeah it was it was i remember you saying sort of like just four videos different color background bit you know i was like or <laughs> yeah we can sort of and i think i i learned from the process of um sometimes less is more or like don't sort of run before you can walk but it was an amazing learning experience um but yeah, I think because it was obviously the songs that Emma had written, they influenced what um, the moods were of what the yeah. what the sort of films, or music videos could be. Um, and it was really nice for me to be able to explore, I suppose, my own catharsis within that as well. So like just random little things or symbolism that have helped me get through in a more private way. It was they're sort of peppered and they don't necessarily have to be explained but it's quite a nice thing to do that and then also the response has been so great that actually it is an incredibly universal feeling even though there's a lot of private stuff within it Mm. it feels like people have responded in a very um you know universal way to the feelings of it Yeah. yeah which is which is great that it's sort of translated and it's not just i guess the symbolism that like you say is really buried and personal um which has been an amazing process of catharsis and uh nurturing kind of our own little griefs and there was also uh an attempt to kind of include dad in in it um and that led us to getting loads of home videos digitized yeah and mm 
all of that footage that none of us had ever seen before. Um, so I extracted a lot of the audio from it and I embedded that into the music and into yes. the interludes and the, and the soundscape. Um, and that's more explicit. Uh, I think it's quite obvious what it represents, but the journey wasn't just a sort of artistic catharsis we actually as a family got to discover things we'd never seen like buried treasure and watch that together and and now we all have have that on our hard drives and you can delve into it and Mm -hmm. they were so precious these these unseen bits of footage and I feel like I personally re-remembered him as a very buoyant bombastic funny healthy tanned person who is so different to the person that you were sort of left with and as you said that image of him diminished is so powerful and it's the last thing you saw Mm. and it's so hard to get that image out of your mind it's like a scar and then all these videos I mean hours and hours of this I remember this huge camcorder and you can see he would only whip it out the odd birthday or when he first bought it because he was showing it off and he's sort of <laughs> walking around with it really smug and you'd catch some of his mates in it sometimes they're like wow damn this is so cool cutting edge wow and it's this <laughs> enormous camcorder from the 90s 80s even yeah 80s 80s um but yeah that was also an incredible privilege oh. had we not embarked on this journey they would have maybe gathered dust for God knows how long. And actually one of his his best friend, who's a great techie, um, was like, don't worry, I've got just the converter. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they spent hours with yeah, me. Because just... it's expensive. Yeah. I tried to do it recently for my sister's hand. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, whoa, what? Yeah, <laughs> so this kind of, yeah, that's He did amazing. it for free, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because he's got the stuff in his your um, mom ancient and, place. Your mum and brother as well must be just so happy as well about this. Cause yeah, found, this archive. Because they've got all this archive as well. I mean, your mum also just must be so proud of the whole project anyway. God. Yeah. yeah we showed her the, the sort of the whole thing um just before we started releasing the first chapter so yes yeah, sorry there are four four cha- chapters yeah and the last release is this coming tuesday it's on the 6th of november oh that's it on the 6th of november yeah when mm. this episode oh no the week this episode comes out when is it who it's a mystery (laughs) exactly Um, and with the full film so it's not just that the four chapters are kind of they they don't just follow on there is an an actual 18 minute short film with kind of interludes Mm. and that you've seen that's the one one you've seen yes exactly yeah and speaking of the four chapters of grief which i love so much because there are so many stages of grief. Mm. Yeah, we ha- only had the budget for four, four stages yeah. of grief. <laughs> no, 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 but as in like... <laughs> I think there's seven in total. Yeah, yeah so. there's seven, but as yeah. in like, it's amazing just songs. seeing that played and sung and spoken out. And I mean, for me, obviously resonated hugely without it, as you said, Tamsin, it doesn't have to be your experience to sort of feel that kind mm. of resonance with what's being shown and said. Emma, you started writing these songs whilst you said some of them before your dad died. So were you conscious that you were already grieving? Um, ooh, that's an interesting question. Mm. It is an interesting <laughs> question, especially because the art of songwriting, you have to pick a topic. So you're, you're very consciously deciding to write about a thing. And the, the music mirrors the emotion in the lyrics and you have to spend hours crafting the lyrics. So that's more of a snapshot of, I guess, perceived authenticity. How, how, how can I make this honest? But it also, I'm thinking about melodies and I'm thinking about harmony and so you're detached. And I, I wouldn't say that was my most acute or, or unselfconscious grieving. I think most of my awareness of my grief has been in hindsight Mm. um I suppose you can activate it Mm. you can decide to delve or you get caught out you think I'm coping quite well that's usually where I'm like oh I'm doing quite well and then something will happen and and it will really um pull the rug from under you and then I will probably then analyze why that was 
the thing that triggered me and then I might consciously decide to delve into like I actually did on Sunday I read Michael Faber's um, Undying which is a collection of poems about his wife before um, during and after her death she was diagnosed with cancer and I just sat there and I indulged in my pain <laughs> and I cried and I sobbed and I, I didn't think oh god I better I need to kind of get it together or I need to this is such a horrible feeling I need to go and do something like watch Emily in Paris and just make sure that I'm not thinking about this anymore <laughs> but um so yeah I think maybe my awareness of my grief is more because I reflect back on periods and think god I was really irritable or mm-hmm. oh god I was crying or oh I was really numb and actually being sailing through without even acknowledging things yeah I don't know if, how aware you are in the moment I don't know do you feel that um no no I suppose not I suppose the moments of just you know like catching you off guard and sort of not being able to control it but I don't really have those so much anymore no normally um what's mm. your process been like Tamsin so when your dad died in five years ago yeah five years ago how yeah. was your um how was your sort of reaction if you will from how did you grieve well i hilariously had really bad tonsillitis so in the last week that he was dying um we were all sort of we all basically stayed in the hospital room and by this point i could not speak my tonsil and i'd been on to antibiotics and um I can't do an impression of how I sounded. Um, you it's, it's, do impression, it's like, yes, please. It's like when you literally, <laughs> like, you, you can't not to speak. <laughs> and you can't. <laughs> oh, it's actually called hot potato. It's called Quincy throat. It's like worse than tonsillitis. And it, well, I didn't it, know I had it then. But it block, it can block really your funny. airwaves without treatment. But I didn't, I hadn't had it then, though. I didn't well, know. I didn't know I had well, it. Well, that's what that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what so good. That's like dark comedy material. <laughs> <laughs> Saying goodbye to like yeah, your dying father. Goodbye. Yeah, literally. <laughs> literally. Well, goodbye, Love. father. See you on the other side. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so I sort of. We then went. We have some family down in um, the West Country, and we went to see them. Um, sort of the morning after dad died and I was so ill we arrived and my uncle was like we're taking you to the GP and I was like absolutely not like I have been in hospital for like no and he was like really easy we're just gonna like check that the antibiotics are working so went down with um, and Emma came with as well and he was like right so you've got Quincy throat and if um, and you have to go to any and I was like no he was like if if you leave it any longer it compress on your main artery leading to your brain and you'll die. I was like, okay, I should go. <laughs> so we sort of went to A&E and I ended up the night on the day after dad died in the hospital. the day of? The day of, yeah, I was in hospital. Gosh. So I ended up staying overnight. So they all went back and like, obviously you want to talk and you want to drink and you want to like mm. laugh. And you, I was stuck <laughs> in a hospital room with someone with that rattle death, you know, that like rattle death. <laughs> I was there like a da- like a breath that I'd been listening to for the past sort of week, and I was like, "Fucking hell, this is so hilarious." I mean, on the only like the only thing you can do is sort of laugh. At it. I don't think I had the maturity to sort of laugh at it. I think I was a bit more sort of dramatic at that age. Were you at the time? I was twenty-four. Twenty-four. Yeah. Twenty-four. Just. Yeah, twenty-four. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just twenty-four. Um, and yeah, and, and so it was really in hindsight. I find it very interesting the sort of I had to process a lot myself during that time because I couldn't speak and our family's very loud and so there was this amazing you know being sort of looked after by our family and I I couldn't process with people so it was actually a very different experience I think to what you and and Luke and mum had Mm -hmm. um because I yeah, I had lost my voice. And you were so ill. Yeah, I was on codeine that and that. Yeah, <laughs> that is. The silver lining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, you're all going to get wasted. I'm just going to get high on codeine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you cannot have any. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I weirdly still have the like empty pack. 
Jeez. Yeah, it's a really weird thing. I don't know why. Every time I'm like throwing stuff out, I can't bear to throw it out. It's really weird. It's quite like sadistic and strange, but no, no, that yeah. to me makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a whole part of that time. Yeah, it's like a connector to that time. Yeah, even though it's like a really horrible memory (laughs) like that's real that's like tangible yeah yeah because it is all so surreal that Mm. transition if you can call it that Mm. even just practically speaking and no one's warned you what you're supposed to do and where you go and who you tell and um yeah it's such a surreal thing so I get why Mm. your box is like oh yeah that did happen and that I was there and yeah yeah and how do you think you're both at in your sort of grief stage, if you will, now? Do you sort of find that it comes, well, as you said the other day, you let yourself just fully indulge in some poetry that resonated? But how, it's, what stage do you feel you're at now? Um, it definitely ebbs and flows. Um, I got married in the summer, so those milestones feel heavy because there's this big void, um, this person who should be there, who's not there, who should be making a speech, who's not making a speech. Um, so it kind of evolves, I think, constantly. It's not what it used to be, and it probably isn't what it will be. I don't think it's ever easier, but it's it just metamorphosizes. Um, <laughs> but I think day to day, I sort of fine and I really enjoy being able to impart any advice or support to people who are experiencing it now I feel like it's a this project and speaking to you about these things and you setting up podcasts like that I I think almost being part of a club helps Mm. um yeah Mm. what about you Tamsin um I think I'm more of a, um, I don't know. I think if I get upset about something, it sort of is like a sort of like ricochets out and always comes to grief. So if it's something that is completely unrelated, I feel like the grief is at this is the sort of epicenter mm. of sadness. So if it sort of triggers, it triggers it. I think that's how I sort of that's how, how I tend to access it. Um, yeah, yeah that I don't make sense. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't really. I don't know. I don't actively engage with it. I think. Yeah. I, yeah. Which I don't know if that's healthy, but. And I'd love to know how you, Tamsin, directing Emma's mm. words. Mm. How you did mention briefly earlier about sort of the little things that you might think of for your own grief mm. that no one really has to know about. It's just kind of your feeling about doing something mm. coming from your sort of perspective of something. But how was it sort of navigating your sister's words <clears throat> over obviously your father and mm. her experience? Was it triggering or was there, was it comforting or how was that experience for you? I think it was there was hard moments. I think as an actor, mm. um, that felt like a very comfortable place for me to be in terms of accessing that emotion um, with Emma, and I sort of was kind of blown away, blown over, <laughs> blown away <laughs> by Emma's um, ability to access that same emotion and to do it in a subtle way so that it didn't feel um, hammy or uh sort of overexposed so i think in in that dynamic when we were working i think i was able to sort of you were like my vessel i suppose um that we we managed to meet in that sort of in that space of um of accessing that emotion together and then emma sort of performing it um yeah it's quite symbiotic yeah and it and it's so emotional and and honest when you're building up to what does this scene mean and what are we trying to convey but on set it's almost more you get distracted with the technicalities and wanting to make sure that you're nailing certain things and costume and lighting and so 
it's it's a nice balance between it being raw and quite painful but also a hugely kind of challenging and ambitious yeah. project where we're both finding our feet with areas that we hadn't worked in before and um yeah it wasn't just four days of complete kind of <laughs> sobbing in a corner no. <laughs> but there, there were elements like watching on the monitor and um like especially the violet hour which is the second one when in this in the dark space where she's in the bird outfit that sounds mental <laughs> guys watch it um but that i found quite i think i found that quite heartbreaking i think because you were giving so much of yourself um and so knowing emma's experience or having an inclination as to how she was experiencing things because we've all we've all experienced the same death but in different ways mm-hmm. that that watching that felt very hard because she was working so hard to convey this feeling and having to do it over and over and over and over and over again um and i know that as a as an actor mm-hmm. and know how hard how much hard work that is but also not in the situation of like that we were in i suppose that it's not like an incredibly personal thing like that that was quite hard work watching some of it yeah yeah and do you think that part of it was quite cathartic, as you said earlier, sorry, I'm just parroting this, but no. I want to go a bit deeper. <laughs> <laughs> Excavation. <laughs> um, but do you think um, the catharsis for you came because potentially words that you hadn't yet found, that Emma started finding mm. before, there was a level of like, oh, this is speaking something that I've, haven't been able to say which again maybe mirrors the fact you couldn't even speak after yeah or at least that's somewhat ironic but then also or or was it a level of this isn't how I feel about I don't know that's interesting I think that's I've never really thought about it in that way but I think I am a lot less I process things quite quietly and I'm a lot less vocal than than some people so yeah I, I it was an amazing sort of gift to be given all of these songs and then to be able to like develop a treatment that yeah I suppose it was really helpful in that I've never really thought about it in that way that it's um yeah sort of um manifestation of maybe things that I haven't been able to say or or I just don't feel I need to say Mm. um Mm. that yeah and yeah yeah yeah. You're right. You've psychoanalyzed me <laughs> perfectly. I think the project for both for both of us the way it sounds that it's a home almost. It's like a a, a sounding board for stuff because I don't really talk about mm. it either. Mm. Um don't really talk about my grief, don't really um talk about how I'm feeling. I even for mm. my husband, um, he's like, oh, I just always assume you're fine. And if you want to talk about mm. it, you will talk about it. And I'm like, yeah, I guess the only time I really get upset is when I wake up from a dream about dad. But um, yeah, maybe this project's been this, but it's just been such a conscious thing that we've had to do. Mm. We're like, we're doing this thing about this thing. We're talking about it. We're illustrating it. We're singing about it. We're, there's all this stuff involved. And it's quite nice. I feel like we've got this emblem of Mm. but I think things like talking about it it, it's nice to have a step away from it because you can't invest your emotion fully because it is a like is a project Mm. and so if you're sort of too emotionally involved you sort of Mm. can't see clearly I was going to say that it was it came into my head earlier how useful in a way those sort of technicalities Mm. because you couldn't fully indulge if you will yeah in in the emotional side of things you had to do other stuff it's like in any kind of mm. so many people's experience of grief very so much less often are mm. they able to fully indulge because they have to pay bills and they have to yeah. do all the technicalities of life and it's kind of like that experience yeah. in a little tiny bubble yeah. of four days you had to get the job done yeah, yeah. so you have to compartmentalize thank cause, god because otherwise you and there were moments <laughs> of like you know like when we were sort of working together on like performance but they were sort of stolen moments they weren't what we didn't indulge in that side of things really because everything was just we were doing so much in so little time um but yeah having stepped away from it and then sort of watching it and being able to see the releases and see people's reactions sort of 
has reminded me I don't want to talk for you but like um, you know of, of 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 dad and of why I feel like now I can sort of start grieving in a weird way yeah I feel like, I feel like it's like oh view that was great but it's over and now I can actually engage with with the like core of it rather than the sort of um aesthetic of it I don't know it's like a facilitator yeah yeah. broke open something through having to do it that's what I mean by it being a home it's like Mm. okay we made a thing and it lives there and now it's got tentacles and you can kind of I feel so much more connected and I'm being asked about it because of the project as well so you're engaging and I don't know yeah gosh that's amazing yeah it's like kind of almost set you free in being able to now grieve Mm. even though grief is something that lots of people kind of probably think is like some sort of tie but actually if you've lost someone you're grieving forever yeah it's just like finding a way to manage that grief you can you can grieve freely like Mm. you don't have to be trapped in this little bubble of grief that's like little stages of it that can happen but actually it doesn't have to yeah, it's like quite nice to sort of have a more kind of balanced, mature approach to it, I suppose. Yeah, and that's quite a hopeful and empowering way of looking at it. Mm. Yeah. Well, where can we find, where can the listeners find this incredible project? On the internet. <laughs> the interweb. Um, on the interweb. I'll put all the links in the show notes. <laughs> in the sh- yeah, it's, uh, so the, uh, the individual chapters are on my youtube channel uh and then the the full film will also be up from the 6th of november amazing so if your dad was listening to this episode right now what would you want to say to him oh dear uh you wouldn't like the state of the world at the moment yeah (laughs) (laughs) probably quite glad that you're dead Yeah, you bowed out at the perfect time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry for burning your medals. Oh yeah, that's nice. Uh, <laughs> sorry, on, yeah, and this? sorry for almost breaking your projector. Yeah, yeah. we used that on a shoot uh, on Tuesday. We did a live version of um, the second song and Violet Hour. Violet Hour. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, um, it's not that. None of that was particularly romantic or deep. Yeah. Dad, I, I miss you. I hope you're proud of us. <laughs> Um, he definitely would be. Yeah, sorry for turning your house upside down and burning your stuff and, yeah, mm. using you to further our careers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, you can get 5%. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, thank you both so much for coming thank on. Thank you. This is amazing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the incredible Topolsky sisters. It was a real treat having two siblings on. It reminded me of season one when I interviewed Carlon and Kevin Bonsu and God, it's fun having three of you in the room. Not only did we laugh a lot, but I also feel like we really touched and honed in on two very different experiences of the same experience of grief and how absolutely crucial it is to firstly acknowledge for yourself and those around you that just because you've had in inverted commas the same death from the same person and you're from the same family it really has absolutely nothing to do with how you then cope and how you then go about living that grief so for me this episode as much as it being absolutely hilarious on so many levels as well as deeply moving and inspiring considering their very creative collaboration and tribute to their father which has just come out yesterday on the 5th of November but I also felt it to be a very real lens into how two people from the same story can then experience something as Tamsin so eloquently said so very differently it was um a real treat to be able to speak to both these wonderful wonderful creative women and I cannot recommend you go and have a look at this four-part series by Sinclair 
on YouTube. As I said in the episode, everything is on the show notes. Whether or not you've experienced grief at this point in your life or not, it's a vision to watch and is incredibly emotive. And I think that's what we all really look for in music, is to be moved on some level. And this will absolutely take you there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Daddy Issues Podcast. If you've been affected by anything at all in the episode, in the show notes, you will see a number of websites whereby you can seek support on various different platforms, including ex-podcast guest and psychotherapist Julia Samuel's website, Black Minds Matter, Calm and Grief Untangled. Warren Borg at Wargie Productions for helping me master and compress all my episodes so they sound that much better. Thank you so much for listening. Please do feel free to get in touch. I love hearing from you. Our email is on the show notes. And please do follow us on Instagram at the Daddy Issues Podcast. Have a lovely rest of your day or night.